0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Welcome to the Southern Alberta Council Public Affairs. I would remind you to please uh, turn off any cell phones you have so that we can all... Keep focused on the uh, subject at hand. Thank you for that. My name is uh, Cheryl Bradley, and I'm your moderator for today. Uh, This session is being recorded, so I'm just uh, informing you of that, and so, question and answer period um, will also be recorded. Uh, as usual, most of you who've been here before know that the price of uh, the meal is $10. So I ask you to please uh, put that in your basket in the center of your table, one for each person, and assign someone at the table to please count it up and make sure that if there's eight people at the table, there's $80. sacpod has been around for a long time, and it, that is amazing for a volunteer organization. It's a, it's a non-profit organization, and SACPAW wouldn't be here without the contributions of volunteers and our partners. Uh, the University of Lethbridge, who um, distributes notices and supports SACPA in many other ways, uh, Country Kitchen Catering, who gives us a great lunch every week, and Shaw TV, who um, broadcasts our sessions. And those will be, can be seen Sundays at 4.30 p.m. And we also want to thank Lethbridge Media generally for uh, attending these sessions and reporting on them. It gets, um, it gets the information that's presented here to a much larger community. And that's a good thing. And, of course, we also rely on members of SACPA to, uh for the organization to keep going. And memberships are for sale. It's only, what, $25 a year? A really good deal. And uh, you can get memberships from Lisa, who's up here at the front, if you're interested. The format of today's meeting is uh, 25 to 30 minutes for a presentation. 25 to 30 minutes for a presentation. Uh, Then we'll spend that same amount of time having lunch. And then there'll be another half hour for a question period. So we should be through by 1.30 p.m. And now I have the uh, great... Pleasure of welcoming our presenters for today. Our topic is climate reality, the science, the denial industry, the way forward. A very current and timely topic. And our speakers are Marion and Robin White. And Marion and Robin are friends from for many many years. They have. Um, been to SACPAW before. Uh, it was about two years ago, I think, when they uh, presented on their award-winning book, Wild Albert at the Crossroads, which was a, uh, a beautiful presentation. And that book has done very well. So they've sold 4,000, and um, they've donated copies to more than 500 schools. So... It's uh, it's been a great contribution to our literature in Alberta. Their extensive travels and global perspective contributes to their long-time role as providers of public environmental education. Robin has a Master of Environmental Studies from York University, and he uh, is an award-winning city land use planner, retired now. And he will be the presenter for the Climate, and is a presenter for the Climate Reality Project Canada. Marion has a Bachelor of Science in Geography from Toronto University. She's an editor and she manages Nature Watch Press. So please join me in welcoming Robin and Marion.
0: Well, thank you for inviting us to speak with you today. Well, can we get the lights down a little bit? Is that possible? Just so it might improve the the picture, the uh, contrast. Can we do that? Okay, I, I think that'll help a little bit. Well, these are the topics we're going to cover today. How is the climate changing? What's the scientific consensus? What do deniers say and why? What targets should we aim for? Why must we change our thinking? Now, for the past 10,000 years, nature provided a, stable, a climate stable enough to allow the evolution of today's plants and animals and modern humans and indeed of civilization itself. Now that vital stability appears to have ended and today climate change is inflicting misery, death, and destruction on millions of people worldwide. Here's a reminder of just some of the weather events of just the last three years. We'll go first to Brazil. This is this lady's house. This is the reality of climate change for some people. In Terrasopolis in Brazil, mudslides buried homes and killed 238 people. Over the last year, total rainforest in parts of Colombia with five times the normal amount and two million people were displaced from their homes. In Pakistan in 2010, about 20% of the country was underwater. Water and 20 million people were affected, including 4 million made homeless. In Australia last year, floods covered an area larger than France and Germany combined. In Seoul, South Korea, floods reached four stories up uh, this apartment building. In 2009, floods affected 40 million Chinese in 12 provinces. And last year, 8.5 million people in 13 provinces. In Assam, India, in July 2009, over a million people were forced to flee from their homes. Last year, the Mississippi hit record flows flooding communities, including Memphis, Tennessee. Here's a school building floating down a highway in Nashville, Tennessee. This was a highway in Killington, Vermont, last August after Hurricane Irene passed through. And Typhoon Megai was one of the most intense tropical cyclones ever. You can see it bearing down on Taiwan. And when it hit Taiwan, it dropped 48 inches of rain in 48 hours. Thailand suffered floods in 2010, and last year it's worst in 60 years, with more than 500 dead. Now while floods make dramatic TV and indeed kill hundreds, droughts kill many more than that. Drought is especially hard on subsistence farmers like these chaps carrying uh, water to their crops. This is France's Loire Valley in May last year. That's not how we imagine the Garden of France. And droughts affect wildlife and livestock. This drought in Tabasco, Mexico, was the worst in six decades. In February 2009, Australia experienced its worst bushfires ever. This is climate reality. It's becoming the new norm. And there's more. as well as as extreme weather events, we're also witnessing major changes in some of the Earth's systems. I'll just say a few words about each of these. Ground zero for climate change is the rapidly melting Arctic sea ice. Since 1980, it's lost half of its thickness, and within 20 years or so, summer ice may well be gone. This would destroy a marine ecosystem all the way up the food chain. This drunken forest in Alaska is falling over because the permafrost is is thawing and it's not holding the roots together. That's a huge concern. Locked in that permafrost are vast amounts of methane. That's a greenhouse gas that's 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide for trapping heat. And the fear here, too, is of creating feedback loops that spiral out of control. Coral reefs nurture the marine food chain, which provides a billion people with their main source of protein, fish. But warming oceans are slowly absorbing more of the extra atmospheric carbon, so are becoming more acidic at any time in the last 800,000 years. The results, this results in bleach and dying coral reefs. Scientists believe that m- uh, most of the coral reefs could be gone by the end of this century. And sea level rise of one metre from thermal expansion and melting glaciers is certainly possible this century. That's enough to swamp islands like the Maldives and half the, the rice land of Bangladesh, which is home to 164 million people. And on top of that, we're experiencing the sixth major extinction of species. Some 30% of amphibians, 25% each of freshwater fish and mammals, including the little pika which we enjoy seeing in the Canadian Rockies, and 13% of birds all face extinction. This time is not an asteroid that's to blame. It's habitat loss and climate change, both caused by humans. And climate change, of course, is also causing harm by invasive species, for example, since the winters are no longer uh, cold or long enough to kill them, bark beetles are multiplying rapidly and killing off vast areas of our coniferous forests. So that's some of what's been happening now. About the scientific consensus, um, I'm going to skip over discussion of greenhouse gases because we don't have the time, um, and jump straight to this question. Why are there so many more big downpours and floods throughout the world? The scientists, what the scientists say these days is this. We've entered a new era where the environment in which all storms form has changed due to human activities. This is a huge storm in Montana. Storms like these suck water in from hundreds of miles away. so the rainstorms and snowstorms are getting bigger and more intense, resulting in more and frequent floods. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to, go to just briefly show the link between climate crisis and weather events around the world. This shows the correlation between atmospheric carbon dioxide and temperature over the last 2,000 years. And you can see as the CO2 concentration goes up, so is the temperature, almost in lockstep. This is looking back over 2,000 years. Remember the Earth's water cycle from when you were at school? As temperatures increase, water is evaporated from the oceans into the sky. And then it falls back to Earth as rain or snow before returning to the sea. Now a key point to remember is that warm air can hold a lot more water vapour than can cool air. And with each additional 1 degree centigrade of temperature increase, The atmosphere's capacity to hold water increases by 7%. And there's already 4% more water vapour over the oceans than there was only 30 years ago. And as global temperatures increase, the Earth's water cycle intensifies. And the same extra heat that evaporates water from the oceans also sucks even more water out of the land. Sometimes the result is a drought like this one in Argentina. Here's China's largest freshwater lake as it was last May. It's been drying out for a number of years. And similar in Syria, which is suffering a prolonged drought. Here's Marion in 2002 on a farm just south of Wainwright in Alberta. A five-year drought ruined central Alberta's crops and turned the soil to dust. 2010 was the largest, was the driest year on record for the Rio Negro in Brazil. As the rains failed, this huge tributary of the River, river Amazon, virtually dried up. You see the river bridge at the back there. And almost a million square miles of the Amazon rainforest suffered from drought. And drought often leads to fire. You will recall Russia's extreme heat and drought in 2010. It set the stage for terrible fires. This was Moscow's Red Square that August. About 56,000 people died due to the combined effects of heat and toxic smog. The drought caused Russia, Ukraine and Kazakhstan to halt their grain exports and four months later world food prices reached record levels. And high global food prices mean starvation for the most vulnerable. Last summer, a particularly severe drought struck the southern United States. And 252 out of 254 counties in Texas experienced wildfires in 2011. The western U.S. wildfire season uh, has increased by 78 days, that's two and a half months probably well, seen this picture before, some 200 people and millions of animals died in the Australian bushfires of 2009. And this, this is reality. We can't pretend that these things never happened. This is the reality that is affecting other people's lives from climate change. Now I'm going to go over these maps fairly quickly. You'll see that they, each map covers, is showing the drought potential. It shows... Uh, each covers a 10 year period this is 2000 to 2009 and watch the areas around the Mediterranean and central uh, United States Plains and the purple colours show drought 260 to 2069 2000, the last decade, this century this is what it could look like see these huge areas of drought in Australia I mean, is this the legacy we want to leave our children and future generations? We have to ask ourselves that. Now, not everybody believes in climate change, so what do the deniers say and why? Well, let's establish the ground rules. Everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Science is about discovering facts. It's not about opinion or propaganda. And here's a few things that deniers claim. Deniers often claim that there's no scientific consensus supporting anthropogenic human-caused climate change. Well, what are the facts? The facts are that every national academy of science of every major country in the world has confirmed that climate change is real and humans are largely the cause. How many national academies have rejected the science? None. And the national academies all agree that the need for action is urgent. And the world's major related scientific societies agree with that. All these people agree with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And 97 to 98% of the climate researchers who are most actively publishing in the field of climate science support anthropogenic climate change, as outlined by the IPCC. Now, that's a huge consensus. Just think about that. Suppose that your daughter woke up one morning with a fever, and you consulted 100 doctors, and 97% uh, said, well, she'll die unless you get her to hospital quickly. But there's three that say, oh, she'll be all right, she just put her to bed, give her a couple of aspirins. Would you follow the advice of the 97 doctors or of the three? I mean, surely this is a no-brainer. But the sceptics persist. Some deniers say the world's top climate scientists have got it wrong. You can spew 90 million tonnes per day of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, use it as a big open sewer, and it couldn't possibly affect the climate. Well, let's, let's see. Let's ask John Boehner. He's the current speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. He should be an intelligent fellow. we ask him what he has to say about the subject. He thinks it's something else.
1: When you look at uh, a volcanic uh, eruption, uh, which uh, I've seen scientists reveal that... Uh, that this could be 50,000 times what man's involvement in terms of grading CO2 would be, uh, you begin to scratch your head and wonder, wait, what is it?
0: Well, we know what it is. It's a red herring, that's what it is. It's something intended to divert attention from the real problem at hand. But let's just pursue Mr. Boehner's argument. He says that volcanoes produce 50,000 times I think he said more greenhouse gases than do humans well we find that volcanoes actually produce 0.15 to 0.26 gigatons greenhouse gases a year but humans produce about 35 gigatons a year that's 135 to 230 times more so clearly Mr. Boehner to be kind to him is confused so Let's ask Mr. Rohenbacher. He's another U.S. congressman, another skeptic. He's got a different explanation. It's called sunspots.
1: Yes, solar activity. That explains why one sees similar temperature cycles on Mars and Jupiter to the cycles that are happening on this planet. That's why ice caps on those planets, like on ours, expand and contract. It's the sun,
0: stupid. Okay. Well, when we're talking about stupidity, there is no ice cap on Jupiter. So we have, we have another red herring here. But the real problem with this argument, though, is that sunspot activity has actually fallen, not risen, over the last 30 years. But temperature has risen. And when you put the two together, you see there's no correlation between the two. But the deniers keep coming up with these red herrings. And I don't know why, because we already have the answer. The answer is too much heat. That's the problem. Last summer, China saw its highest temperature ever recorded 50.2 degrees. As did Iran and Iraq 53 degrees. And Pakistan in 2010. The highest temperature ever recorded in a nation city. And India last year, around the world, people are feeling the reality of a warming planet. In the European heat wave of 2003, an estimated 71,000 people died of heat. And last year in the U.S., all 50 states and over 200 cities broke or tied their heat records. Some sceptics claim that global warming has actually stopped. Is it true? No, it's not true. These are the global temperature readings for the last 130 years provided by four of the world's major research centres. So NASA's Goddard Institute, the Met Office in England, the NOAA in in the States, and the Japanese Meteorological Agency. And see how close they are. They're looking from 1880 to 2000. And the fact is that the hottest 10 years on record have occurred from 1998 onwards. And 2010 was tied for the hottest year ever measured. So what's the purpose of all these red herrings? (coughs) Well, the purpose is to reposition global warming as a theory, not as a fact. You need to know that there is a history to this story of manipulating public awareness. And it began with the tobacco industry and its uh, public relations firms. I remember this myself in the 50s and 60s, who used to pay doctors uh, to promote cigarette smoking. Well, you imagine the misery you know, that has caused. But today it's big oil and big coal that they use similar tactics to try and mislead and confuse the public about the urgency of dealing with the climate crisis. So what targets should we aim for? Well, there's now general agreement amongst nations that to have even a 50-50 chance of avoiding dangerous climate change, any increase in global temperature must exceed 2 degrees centigrade above the 15 degrees centigrade that prevailed at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Now, a 2 degree centigrade increase is clearly not a safe level. There's already been an increase of 0.8 degrees centigrade, and look at the havoc it's caused. What I was showing you earlier, we've seen more severe droughts, floods, and heat waves, the rapid melting of the Arctic ice cap, the melting of in- inland glaciers, uh, much longer while wildfire seasons more acidic oceans and loss of coral reefs the Amazon rainforest drying out the boreal forest under major attack from insects and wildlife facing a major extinction and Alberta is not going to get away with it according to the Pembina Institute Alberta can expect increased frequency of flooding and drought water scarcity forest and grass fires desertification in the southeast health problems from air pollution and vector-borne diseases. That's what we can look forward to. Now, last December, before that big meeting, big climate change meeting in Durban, the International Energy Agency, which is a very conservative body, gave the world this, this warning. It said, if we don't have an international agreement whose effect is put in place by 2017, that's only five years away, then the door to holding global temperature to two degrees centigrade of warming will be closed forever. And the reality is actually a little bit worse than that because in addition to that 0.8 degrees centigrade of warming we've already experienced, scientists believe there's at least another 0.6 on the way from carbon already in the atmosphere. So the world is likely committed to nearly 1.4 degrees of warming even if every vehicle was parked and every factory closed today. And the agency warns that the current reduction pledges are nowhere near adequate to keep uh, below 2 degrees centigrade and unless we cut more the world is on track for 3.5 or 4 degrees centigrade so what should we aim for well to stay within 2 degrees centigrade the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere shouldn't be allowed to go above 450 and we're already at 391 um, But to stay within a much safer 1.5 degrees centigrade increase that would much better protect the world's coastlines and island communities, we need to actually uh, reduce CO2 levels to about 350 parts per million. So how are we doing? Well, the important number here is 1990 is, is the baseline against which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change measures increases uh, or changes in, uh, in, in, greenhouse, in greenhouse gas emissions. So how are, we, how are we doing and what should we aim for? Well, the scientists are telling us that uh, by 2020, we should be trying to get our greenhouse gases down by about 25% from where they were in 1990, and by 80% um, by 2050. So by 2050, we should be largely out of fossil fuels. And what is Canada doing? Well, Canada, of course, to be difficult, doesn't use 1990 as a baseline. It uses 2005. And what the Harper government said it would do is reduce greenhouse gases by 17% um, from the 2005 level. And that would take us to about 3% above 1990 and about, by 2050, about 57% below. And Alberta? Well, Alberta also... Uses 2005, and we're going to do virtually nothing at all. Uh, 2020, we're going to uh, hope to cap greenhouse gases and then have a reduction of uh, 14% from where it was in 2005. And that lands us in 2050 at 20% above the 1990 level. So, in summary, what we have is scientists saying you should be nearly out of fossil fuels. Canada a little bit more than halfway there, and Alberta uh, just making a, a token, barely a token effort. We're still 20% above. H- haven't really changed at all. And so this is where we, sh- we should be in 2020, and um, we're nowhere near it. Now, what this shows is the importance of Alberta, because Alberta provides uh, 33% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions and if Alberta doesn't pull its weight it's going to be very hard for the other provinces to make up that difference for Canada to meet its guidelines uh, its target and that's if Canada's trying but Canada isn't trying the Federal Environmental Commissioner's latest report describes Canada's efforts to meet its greenhouse gas emissions targets as disjointed, confused and non-transparent and the only other chart I want to show you is this one which shows on a per capita basis on a per capita basis the world's greenhouse gas emissions are about 4.3 tons per person and you see Bangladesh you know, 0.9, India 1.9 way below the 4.3 and we see the European countries around 10 tons and we see um, Canada and Australia would be in there, USA about 20 tons and Alberta there's Alberta 68 tons per person that's the amount of greenhouse gases we produce if we were a country and not a province we would be the highest in the world tied with Qatar and of course we can say well it's the oil and gas business and these coal fired electricity we've got to have that so that's a lot of the 68 tons so the last thing we're going to talk about is changing our thinking we must change our thinking We need to wake up to the fact that the world is moving away from fossil fuels towards a new green economy based on conservation and renewable energy. You won't see much sign of it in North America, but visit Europe, China or Japan and you will. Canada badly needs to get on board because it's being left behind. And we need to examine our thinking because there's something wrong with our thinking when our addiction to cheap oil drives us to this, trashing huge areas of our boreal forest just to get to the bitumen, thereby uh, accelerating climate change, we're going to sell it to the um, very ethical Chinese. And there's something wrong with our thinking when we have a 5 million barrel oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico ruining beaches and destroying fisheries and livelihoods. And when we do this to the creatures with whom we share this planet. And when instead of being dismayed at the rapid melting of Arctic sea ice we rub our hands with glee at the prospect of drilling for oil under there and when our closest allies stand accused of invading other countries to grab their oil. And there's something wrong with our ethics when we become indifferent to the misery our lack of action on climate change bestows on the poor of other countries. According to the Global Humanitarian Forum, climate change is already responsible for 300,000 deaths a year through flooding and drought and disease, and if present trends continue will cause millions of environmental refugees. And there's something wrong with our ethics again when we allow government to play Russian roulette with our children's future. But Canada is more than just an irresponsible federal government. It's we the people, and we are much better than that. Several provinces, cities, and numerous companies aren't waiting. They're leading the way in reducing emissions. We owe it to our children to give them a reason for hope. The time for action is now. Thank you.